good stuff. All right, open your Bibles, if you would, letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, right? Continuing our study, and I do hope you're reading along. I really do hope you're reading along with, with, the, with the teaching because it makes it so much more profitable. And if you are reading along, you'll, you'll be able to appreciate what I mean when I say this is an incredible, incredible letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, as we've been moving through it, we first noted how Paul talks about our, our status, the place we have, our identity, if you will, in Christ, adopted children, citizens, members of God's household. And then Paul moved from there to the importance of living or walking in a manner consistent with that new identity, um, the new status, right? Uh, last week, we started the, Paul started to kind of shift from those larger concepts of who we are under the, under the umbrella of walking in a manner worthy to the corporate element of our Christian experience. Um, the, the point being that if any of us have any hope of living the kind of lives as believers, living the, the full and rewarding Christian life that, that God has in mind, that has to include the corporate context, the body of Christ. We cannot be the Christians he intends us to be without the body of Christ. And conversely, the body of Christ, the church, can't be the church he intends it to be. He desires it to be without us. And we'll be pretty much in, the, in that same vein this morning. Um, the, the, the simple point being that the believer that chooses to live independently of the body of Christ um, diminishes both their own Christian experience and the church's. Right. We, we need one another, and we are needed by the body of Christ, right? So we're all talking, all of this is under that guise of walking in a manner worthy of his calling. Well, this morning, we're going to look at another element of that walking in a manner worthy of his calling. And it's a really, really crucial thing that Paul writes uh, in our text this morning. You know, as Paul moves from those more general ideas, our calling, our identity, our place in the body of Christ, walking in a manner worthy, and he gets more specific. And he starts talking in more, um, you could say, more practical day-to-day -day instructions it's really easy for us to get drawn into the specific of the instruction. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves, you know, kind of going back into a, well, Christians do this, 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 and don't do this, 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 and creating a legal framework, um, which is not the intention. The intention is, to, is for us to walk in community with one another. And so one of the things that Paul does to help us get that right perspective is when he, gives, when he tells us to do something, or conversely not do something, he always gives a reason. There's a reason, and it's relative to that walking in community. And we're going to see that uh, in our text this morning. Because in the next two and a half chapters, Paul's really going to address some very specific issues. And um, it's important to not just look at the what he says, but the why. Really important to know the why. You know, just, just one example. Um, we always hear people talk about how, you know, how the church needs to remain up to date. And the church needs to speak to contemporaries. Well, it does, Right? But we also have to retain the eternal values that are, are, are part of what it is to be the church, right? You know, so just for example, um, the way people dress, that can change. Culture may change how we dress, right? Culture can change the normal outward appearance, but it can't change who we are inside. Culture can't define who we are, the person inside the clothes. 
So it's important to understand why he says what he says. And we'll look at that as we go through the text. So let's uh, get right to it. Chapter 4 of the Ephesian letter. We're going to pick it up at verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order he may have something to share with the one that has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. Father, we want to be cautious this morning as we, listen, as we, as we look to your word, cautious and careful to follow the, the instruction of your word, Lord. But Father, we also want to be mindful this morning to always act in kindness and love toward one another as we would, Father, incorporate your very clear instruction in your word, Father, into our lives in such a way that all things are done for edification, Lord, to build one another up in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing Paul talks about when he starts to get into this more specific, you know, more direct vein of what we as Christians need to be doing, the first thing he talks about, the mouth. What we say and do, what comes out of our mouth, right? That's something I think we all know instinctively is, is really important. And so to understand what Paul's talking about in the words that we speak, he uses some really important key words to talk about what we say. And we want to look at those key words. And then we're going to look at exactly what he says about that, to do, to not do. And then finally ask, how does that speak to us in the here and now? The key words, and there's two real key words here, are falsehood and truth, right? He said laying aside falsehood. And the idea there is not simply don't do it. It's like, you know, step back from the table kind of a thing. Put space between yourself and falsehood. Put it down. Walk away. And the word that he uses for falsehood, you should like this one, is the word sevdo. And it comes right into English as pseudo. So our English word pseudo, and we use that in compounds. You can put that in front of almost any English noun and make a word out of it, you know. Somebody you thought was a close friend, they really let you down. They do something that really they shouldn't have done. And you say, well, you're a pseudo friend. Everybody knows exactly what that means, right? We can be very creative with a word like this. And um, there's nothing new about that, right? It's been done for a long time. The Greeks did that a lot. They loved putting words together. And now you can participate in that by just putting pseudo in front of something you say. In fact, in the New Testament alone, there's 15 different words that were other words, and they attached pseudo in front of it, right? Uh, the Bible talks about um, false brethren, pseudo brethren, uh, false apostles, false Christs, false teachers, false, false words, lies, uh, false witnesses, false prophets, Right? And, and if you want to call somebody a liar in Greek, it, it's so good. Semata! Right? That's a multiplicity of pseudo, right? You tell lies, right? 
When you get called a liar in Greek, you know it. Man. So it's, it's a language that conveys this idea of falseness. But it's not just falseness. There's always an element of deception with it. It's not just false like it's false. It's false like, but it pretended to be true. Again, false friend. Thought you were my friend. You're not, right? What Paul is saying when he says set aside falsehood, you know, it's like Captain Hook, you know. Stop the charade. The charade, I forget how he pronounces it. Don't, don't, don't take a part of this masquerade, right? If you look at the Old Testament, for example, and I've, I've talked about the fact that we glean a lot by looking at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that three centuries before Christ, where most Jews didn't speak Hebrew, but they spoke Greek, so the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek. We gain a lot of understanding how the words uh, were used. Boy, you can pick it right up. Uh, Deuteronomy. Not just the language, but how God feels about this whole matter of, of falsehood. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag differing weights and differing measures. Don't have false measures. He's talking about how we do business, right? Um, a false balance. This is uh, Proverbs 11.1. 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. It's the strongest word you can find in the Old Testament for how God views a sin. And for like a money changer, the guys that made change outside the temple, if their balances weren't right, it was an abomination in God's sight, right? Um, differing weights, differing um, measures are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Amos is a really good one. Amos is in one of the later prophets. He's talking to Israel at a point of time when they had really were not in a good place. And uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 4, uh, God speaks to the prophet this way, and he's talking to the people, you know, the wealthy people who took advantage of the poor. He said, Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. We're going to make more money by reducing the size of our bushel basket. People will think they're buying a whole bushel. They're not getting it. So we'll make more money. Our shekel will increase, right? Falsehood. Misrepresenting something. To misrepresenting something in the eyes of God is a great evil. Why? Because it damages relationship between people. The poor know when they're getting ripped off. It breaks down community. To present that which is false. And a thing to note in all of this, none of this is abstract. You know, we sometimes think that God says you shouldn't lie because he doesn't like lying and lying is bad, so that's the end of the sentence. No. Falsehood is an abomination because it has an effect on relationships, and God is all about relationship. Remember, this is all talking about within the body of Christ. Falsehood breaks down abomination, right? Paul tells the Ephesians, just stay away from the pseudo. Anything that smacks of falsehood, just stay away from it. You don't want anything to do with it. Instead, he says, speak the truth. That's the second big word. The first word was falsehood. second big word is truth. And that's the word lithia, and it's a huge word. All the way back to the earliest part of the language. Um, you go back to the earliest. If you know anything about Greek philosophy, you know this is a word that they really talked about a lot. Exactly what is truth. You know, we all have kind of this gut level understanding of what is truth. But really try to define it, it gets a little bit more difficult. And of course, you know, the Greek philosophers, they went back and forth and back and forth. Never fully resolving it. So much so 
that we get to what I think is like one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture when here's Jesus talking to Pilate. Pilate's got a one-on-one. Pilate is a one-on-one with the creator of the universe. He's got a one-on-one with the one that came to save his soul. And Jesus looks Pilate in the eye and he says, I came for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. Lethia. And Pilate's response is, what's that? What is truth? He had no interest in it. And the conversation ends at that point. There's no point in going any farther. Nothing for Jesus to say. Pilate is simply not interested. So the definition of what truth was was kind of hard to nail down, but there was one thing that the philosophers and the poets and even the politicians had to agree on is that in truth, there's a reflection of something's initial nature. However you wanted to define the essential nature of something, remember the picture of Plato pointing up and Aristotle. However you were on that spectrum, whatever you thought the essential nature of things were, truth was that which conformed to something's essential nature. You know, we talked about a false friend, pseudo friend. Uh, when we say somebody has a, is a true friend, what are we saying? When you describe somebody as a true friend, you're not just saying they don't lie to you. Right? They're saying they are everything that a friend should be. And what a valuable, precious thing that is to have somebody close to you that you know whatever need your friendship places on them, they're going to respond. That's a true friend. Not really one who just doesn't lie to you. They are everything that a friend should be. They, their life, their character touches on what the essence of friendship is. That's, that's a true friend. When we speak of something true, see, the problem is in our, in, our, in our contemporary use of truth and lie, and we think about those things, our culture has, has trended towards defining something as true if it's at least not 100% a lie. You know, if I tell you something that's 90% false and 10% true, you don't want to be called a liar because, after all, it was 10% true, right? That's not good enough. If I tell you something that's 90% true and only 10% false, I, you better not call me. Well, guess what? That's not good enough. Truth is only truth when it's 100% truth. I had, the, I, I had this illustrated for me when I was growing up. Uh, my grandparents were rock hounds. They, they lived in the high desert. They loved to go out in the high desert of California and just pick up rocks, and they had some really cool stuff. Well, one of them that they picked up over the years was this green rock I mean, it was just beautiful green, about the size of a walnut. And they couldn't figure out what it was, so Grandpa started to do some research. And what he discovered was that a lot of the larger emeralds in the world had been found that way, just kind of randomly on the ground. People pick them up. And I thought, wow, that would be cool, have an emerald the size of a walnut. And so uh, I told you my dad was a woodshop teacher, so he took it to the chemistry teacher. And they, you know, they did their best to measure it and get a total you know, volume on the thing, total size. And they weighed it. Its weight was perfect for an emerald. Like, wow, this would be cool, right? And so dad took it downtown. I went with him uh, right downtown LA. We hardly ever went there. We avoided it like a plague. But right downtown LA where all the big time you know, jewelers were, those who dealt with you know, precious gems. And dad took it in, and the guy took it in the back room. And he came out in about 15, 20 minutes. He says, what do you have got? is a gorgeous piece of volcanic glass. Oh, bummer. Dad said, so, so what's the deal? He said, volcanic glass, he said, it's the exact same you know, weight, 
per, you know, I guess molecular weight is the right term. It's the same molecular weight as an emerald. It's the right color as an emerald. It has virtually every trait of an emerald but one thing. He said, if I try to cut it, it will explode. If I touch it to my cutting instruments, the whole thing just goes poof, right? Every characteristic of one, but one rather, not good enough. That's how truth works. You are, you aren't. If you're only 90% there, you're not, right? So Paul says, speak the truth, right? It's so contrary to the way we communicate in our society. And this is, I think, one of the strongest areas or one of the hardest areas to be a believer and function with integrity as a believer in our society because our society is so accustomed to not speaking that way. We just grant ourselves so much leeway, right? Culturally, we love to live, and this comes into our Christian speech, if we're not careful, we love to live in the gray of euphemisms, right? Euphemisms, words that sound pleasant and as a way of saying something other than what you're saying, well, you know what I mean, right? Um, uh, uh, for some reason, I guess I hear it more from young people. I'm sure it's not unique to them, right? You hear a couple of young people talking, and they say, and by young, I mean young adults. I don't mean kids. And they say they're dating. What do they mean? They're sleeping together, right? Boom. Um, or they'll say, um, you ask them, what did you guys do last night? We hooked up. What, you backed your truck up to your trailer and hooked it up? No, that's not what they mean. They mean something else, right? Where it really, really came to a head for me, and I'm not like angry at the person. I'm just trying to understand, how do you talk that way? Um, most of you know that I was on one of the, for the juries for the murder trial a couple, three years ago, and um, one of the witnesses that was testifying, young lady, um, and I'm just listening. I'm on the jury. I'm just listening. And the point that the attorney was trying to make he was asking her, because she spent a lot of time with the accused and in that whole circle of, of people involved with that crime, and was asking, when you're together spending time, what do you do? And the answer was, we smoke marijuana. That's what we do. So the question was asked, when you're hanging out, what do you do? Well, we play video games and smoke pot. Okay, what else? Uh, we watch movies and smoke pot. Um, we, and she went down the list of all the things they did, and then it, and it was always, and we smoke pot. Okay, which was the point he wanted to make, that that was a part of what this group did. But he didn't like, she had this whole list of euphemistic expressions for marijuana. And the attorney was trying to get her to use that word. And finally, he got point blank with her, and he said, look, this is illegal proceedings, we need you to use the word marijuana, please. And it was like pulling teeth. There was some, now, she had no intention of denying what they were doing. She had no problem saying, yeah, we smoke dope by the bail vault. But to use the one word that specifically described what they were doing, when she finally did it, she did it with a look and a voice of disdain. How dare you mandate I use that word, even though it's the accurate word. In our culture, we just don't think we should have to do that. We are so comfortable in this gray area, right? And that is really, really dangerous because without clear speech, truth cannot be conveyed. And that doesn't matter if it's the truth of the gospel, 
No truth. Because once we allow falsehood in, even in small measure, then every part of communication becomes corrupted. Every part of communication becomes corrupted. And the result is that, that when falsehood is part of our speech, communication is corrupted, relationships suffer. Look what Paul says, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. There's the point. The what is speak truth. The why is we're members of one another. It is because of this incredible relationship we have in the body of Christ that speaking the truth is so absolutely essential. And Paul says we are members of one another. That word is almost always used to describe a member of the body, like an arm or a hand or a foot. Paul says we are, we are just the same as a physical body. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about the communication within your body? I picked David's brain before. I think I'm on solid ground here. We have an incredible ability to pick, to communicate within our body. For example, let's say you cut your hand. And, you know, your hand's in trouble, right? And, and bacteria begins to enter the hand, right? Now, there's certain systems that we need to go immediately to work. But imagine if you're, if, if you will, and it's kind of funky, I know, but imagine if you will, if your hand, when you cut it, responded like the average American male. Uh, are you okay down there? I'm good. Everything's okay? Yeah, everything's fine. Do you need anything? Oh, I got it under control. No, you don't. Right? It's kind of absurd, right? Because we automatically assume it. But if that communication is interrupted, I was amazed by the stuff David was sharing with me. Love having people like that that I can pick their brains. Because it just confirms to me so many things about the goodness of God. But it also conveyed to me an understanding of the importance of honesty in communication with one another. Look at the rest of the chapter. The whole thing is really about being honest in what we say, the way we speak with one another. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't pretend you're not angry when you are. I'm fine, no. Speak that issue out, but in a way that is not full of wrath. In honesty, speaking the truth. And do not give the devil an opportunity. That's that open wound that doesn't have, you know, the white blood cell going to it. Because we haven't spoken the truth, right? Verse 28 threw me off. Because this whole section is all about speaking the truth, right? And this is where he says, steal no longer. And it took me a while. And I went, what does that have to do? The whole thing is about speaking honestly and truthfully. What does this business of stealing have to do with speaking truthfully? And so I went to that source of so much information, my kids. When your kids are young and one of them takes something that belongs to the other one, they steal their sibling's toy and you challenge them on it, how do they respond? Do they ever say, yep, that's right, I did. No. What's the first thing out of their mouth? Um, it's mine. Or, my brother gave it to me, right? Okay. I love this one. The evidence can be in their hand. And they go, no, I didn't. <laughs> I won't say which one that involved. 
ones that are involved here. But I love my kids. They're incredible. When you think about it, when you steal something invariably, and the interesting thing is how often in Scripture the word thief and liar are put together. It's extremely common, the word thief and liar being put together. When we're stealing something, inevitably we, we make the assertion that it was our right to have it. The thief when caught almost always has some kind of bogus justification why what they took was actually okay for them to take. And then you follow the rest of the chapter out. Uh, verse 29 let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for what? Edification. The words that build people up. Lies do not build people up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What grieves the Holy Spirit? That which wounds, it, wounds the body. That which wounds the body of Christ grieves the Spirit of God. Speaking truth one to another. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The way we speak to one another in our families, in our marriages, in the body of Christ, are we speaking truthfully and yet with love? You know, I don't think we even begin to appreciate just how strongly God feels about his church. I don't. I think in our American experience of the church, we have so missed it. And I speak as, from, as of myself as much as anybody else. Um, how strongly God feels about this, what we have here. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is headed to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And he knows, he doesn't know the details, but he knows that chains await him. This, this is the end of the road for him. He knows that. When he's on his way to Rome, this is all after the events of the Ephesian letter, he's on his way to Rome, and he has to go by Ephesus. These people, the same people he's writing to, right? But he doesn't have time, because he has a date he has to get back into Jerusalem. So he, he, he stops on the beach, literally, and he calls for the Ephesian elders to come meet him. And Acts chapter 20 is one of the most heart-rending passages of Scripture, because it's Paul talking to these people that means so much to him, and they're knowing they're never going to see his face again. It says that. In the text, they know they're never going to see him again. And in that conversation, Paul says this. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We are so comfortable with the idea that God died for me. And I'm okay with him dying for you too. But we're so comfortable with the idea of Jesus shedding his blood for us as individuals. We have got to be deliberate in expanding our understanding of that to know that he shed his blood for his church. He shed his blood for the corporate body. Because when we think, start to think in terms of his church, this body, frankly, we struggle, I think, having the same sense of priority for it that God does. And when we, when we can't prioritize the body of Christ, well, the same way that, that God does, that tells us we need to change our priorities. And, and it's hard enough for me to change my priorities when I'm the direct beneficiary of them. Right? Even when it's in my own personal good, I still struggle to make those changes to my life that are necessary. 
to bring my priorities in line with his. It's an even greater struggle, I think, when it's for the body of Christ. And yet, if we're going to have the life that he intended us to have, if we're going to walk in the rich, full Christian experience he intends for us, I think it's absolutely essential that we do that. But here's the really good part. Here's the really good part. When we make the effort to line up our priorities with his, live the way he tells us to live in his word, whether it's for ourselves or whether it's for our family or whether it's for the body of Christ, when we make the effort to line up our priorities, it's never bad. It's always good. It's always good for me. It's always good for my marriage. It's always good for my family. And it's always good for the church. And in this particular case, it starts with the way we speak to one another. Do we speak in honesty and truth without the veneer of, of euphemisms, half-truths, grace? Do we walk in the light, not in the darkness, and not in the gray? Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. It's, it's so, I think, clear to us this morning. Uh, but it's a challenge, Father. It's a challenge because we live in a society, Lord, that has gotten so good. Oh, Lord, it's, a, it's amazing how good our society has gotten. Well, good we've gotten. We need to take ownership of this, Lord. How good we've gotten at the half-truth, the euphemistic expression, telling people what they want to hear. Father, we've all, we've all been there, Father, when the, the person caught in the lie just says, well, I told you what you wanted to hear, Lord. We're so good at that. And, Father, we know it's ultimately fatal to our walk with you. It's certainly fatal to our relationships, Father. So I pray, Lord, as, as we go through this week and we, we weigh these things in our minds, Lord, we'll look seriously at the way we communicate with those closest to us, Lord. We'll look, we'll act, we'll look how we communicate with others in the body of Christ, Lord. Father, we'll be open, we'll be honest, and we'll speak with love that your church might be edified, that we might be edified, that our families might be built up. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. He is so, so worthy of our praise.